Welcome to RPG Ramblings, a weekly show exploring various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. The first interview is with Sean Richer, and we discuss his Terror of the Stratosphere, which is a gonzo horror sci-fi mashup for Dungeon Crawl Classics. They are an absolutely beautiful set of zines produced by successful Kickstarters. We discuss how Rifts was the inspiration, and we de-evolve into discussing Savage Worlds. For the deep dive, Mark Hunt describes his journey in acquiring the IP for Gangbusters, an old TSR game that was out of print for decades. We start at the beginning and go through the steps it took to become the owner of the IP and start publishing. This can serve as an inspiration and a starting point for those wanting to pursue an existing IP. Without further ado, it is time to get rambling. Could you give us a little bit of history of your of your gaming? I think a lot of people get into the game through like Dungeons and Dragons or like BX or something. And the way that I ended up coming in was through uh, Robotech. Uh, I was at the library a lot as a kid and I, I thought Robotech was cool. So I'd, I'd uh, go through the Telnet thing and figure out all the cool Robotech stuff. And eventually I started picking up the Palladium books for Robotech. And that ended up being a backdoor into me getting involved with uh, Riffs. So for a long time, um, I basically just read Riffs. So like if people, like a, a fair amount of time on Twitter is like, I don't understand this. My background is entirely Riffs. Like what, what is going on here? Like, I don't know the entire history of like TSR or whatever. <laughs> So did you did you uh, pay into the the uh, uh, Savage Worlds got a they reissued it for Savage Worlds? Did you buy into that? I did. I did actually. That's that's actually that's actually what got me into Savage Worlds. So there was a hot minute where basically I think I backed everything on Sav- Savage Worlds on um, Kickstarter for like a year and a half. Yeah, and there's a good chance that I own most of the Savage Worlds stuff on DTRPG. So, so <laughs> this is stop there for a second. The because I I've I've read about it. I'm not necessarily sold on riffs, but I know they made this 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 change over or at least converted to to uh, Savage World. Do you think that because before I mean Palladium's known for just being kind of wacky, throwing all sorts of stuff out, mechanics that don't necessarily work, some stuff that's really broken. Do you feel that the Savage Worlds uh, they actually like fixed it, so to speak, or do you think it's just a different take on it? Or um, I think they they there's a fair amount of things that that were adjusted in a way that made sense like uh in the original riffs you have the whole uh structural damage versus mega damage we have right. like 100 times damage ampl- amplification the way they handle that in savage worlds they already have like a heavy armor thing or a heavy weapon thing and the idea was uh heavy armor could only be affected by like heavy weapons basically and they they brought that over to um to riffs which keeps the damage from scaling in a weird way in general heavy weapons deal more damage than the the, the normal weapons so like there's a, there's a natural order to things but if you get hit by like a rail gun, it's not or sorry, if you get hit by like a vibro knife, it's not going to instantly like just give you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is kind of what happened in the original riffs. Like you could get hit by like a neuro mace or something and then your body would just explode. Or like a juicer could punch like a uh, station wagon and it would just explode or something. And that doesn't really happen as much in um, the Savage Worlds version. But you do have, um, what's the word for it? You do have uh, exploding dice, right. which I think work out really well with the system. Um, Savage Worlds is really nice for like when you know the system, you can make a character in under like ten minutes. Um, the problem with uh, riffs for Savage Worlds is it still takes like twenty minutes to make a character. <laughs> but it's just there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff, and like most of the characters come in at like in Savage Worlds they use like ranks for their power levels, so um, they, they just come in at a higher rank. <laughs> just to deal with the the weird cartoony level of what the hell in um, riffs. So did you actually get to play the Savage Worlds version? 
Yeah, I have. I've played both. Um, I, I actually uh, GM'd for Savage Rifts uh, a couple times. Um, yeah, it was it was fun. So, how do you think the feel was for it? I mean, I, th I think the feel is is it, it felt it felt good. It felt like Rifts. I think they did a lot of stuff with like the lore and the setting to kind of like anchor it in there. Um, you get into some weird stuff with just the way Savage Worlds does spells because their spell book is like five pages long. Right. <laughs> and it's just like Bolt. Bolt is the same as Fireball. is the same as like uh, Chain Lightning and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think that when it came down to the the actual core Rifts classes like the uh, the Juicer and the Glitter Boy and stuff, they all they all came through just fine. Um, especially with like the multi-action penalty stuff, it like, it feels nice and you end up in situations where your, um, what do you call it? Your glitter boys have to remember to use the multi-action to like anchor themselves into the ground or they, they blow themselves up like, <laughs> across the battlefield and stuff. Like I, re I really love riffs. I feel like it, it conveyed it well. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> right. I think you just need the right person to run it. Yeah, yeah, you need someone who is both like pretty bought into Rifts and also pretty bought into Savage Worlds. And I believe at the time, like Rifts was like one of the largest Savage Worlds Kickstarters that had happened. So it was like a really bizarre uh, co-opting process <laughs> where the Savage Worlds community was like, wait, what? <laughs> well, right now with Pathfinder being ported over, that's what I'm really interested in to see. I'm not a Pathfinder fan, but I'm really interested to see how they're going to make that work. I, I saw that was coming, and I think that it, one of the weaknesses of Savage Worlds is that it doesn't have a good, it, it doesn't really have any like large first or second party fantasy settings with it. Like they've just not right. tried to do it. I think mainly because like if you try to compete with like D and D or Pathfinder, you're it's hard. I think just to like hit all the notes that everyone expects. Right. Because because um, does D and D does D and D better than anybody else? And Pathfinder is basically D&D. So you're right. You cannot outdo the D&D &D experience for D&D. &D. It's true. And I look at a lot of like the Twitter discourse on it. And I think that like you end up in a lot of different things. It's like, you know, when people say that things don't do D&D as well as D&D, &D, like, are you saying that this other content doesn't like emulate Eberron? Because like, you can't really do that. <laughs> or, you know, it's like, so it's kind of neat to see the Pathfinder stuff coming over to Savage Worlds. But um yeah, I'd be curious to see how it goes. I mean, if I remember correctly, there's like, uh, oh God, there's uh, Beasts and Barbarians is one of the, uh, it's kind of like sword and sorcery for um, Savage Worlds, which was pretty cool. And there's also, um, uh, I think there's Shintar. There's, there's a couple, I can't remember all the fantasy stuff. Uh, I, I switched over to DCC really, really hard. Yeah. <laughs> I, I started writing uh, Stratosphere for Savage Worlds. I actually have the document sitting on Google Docs still. Um, and then a buddy of mine who uh, plays a lot of Savage Worlds basically was like, actually, you should write this for MCC. And I was like, what? So I went and picked up the MCC book and I was like, this, this is a really big book. I don't know about that. And then I kind of dove into all the DCC stuff and that's more or less how uh, Stratosphere ended up for DCC because of a Savage Worlds friend of mine. <laughs> okay. So uh, so you went from some Savage or did the Savage Worlds and Rifts. So what else have you gone through through the years? Um, th that's mostly what I've played. I think more recently, like I'm, I'm playing in like a DCC Neverland game right now, which is pretty cool. I'm liking that a lot. Neverland is kind of a fun setting. Uh, throwing it on top of a DCC funnel is kind of <laughs> hilarious. Because it, it takes like this sort of fun world that's a little brutal and makes it very brutal. Oh, okay. Just because DCC, <laughs> right? Character characters are dying constantly. 
it's uh it, it's cool um let's see so like yeah i'd say that the majority of my playing background is is generally riffs related um i've only played in like two D D games and they were both um what do you call it um fandelver the the starter kit oh yeah fandelver is nice i i liked it I, playing it twice was interesting to me i was actually playing in two fandelver games at the exact same time with two different dms of like different um i guess background and skill one was like the fir first time dm one had dm'd a lot for fourth edition and it was just really cool kind of seeing like how they brought it to life like i had some background knowledge of like having played in the other game campaign at the exact same time but seeing the way the dms brought it to life was really cool kind of gave me a different love for the way adventures are written I think that first encounter that that cave set up the was it the I can't remember what it's called the caves of Fandelver my I can't remember, but that first setup is like absolute genius. I've ran that I don't run a lot of D and D, but I ran that same scenario like three or four different times in completely different outcomes. Yeah, I'm trying to think because one of I think in one of our games we got flooded by the water yeah. and knocked out of the cave. Yeah, and then in the other one we ended up uh, taking the wolves with us like all the way to the Red Brand Mansion. So yeah, spoilers. It, <laughs> but yeah, in in general, I find that I'm not necessarily a big fan of the. I, I'm not a big fan. I, well, I don't mind playing Fifth Edition. I've done a little bit, but I'm not necessarily a big fan of Fifth Edition. But I find that the modules usually are very problematic, and there's just some very deep issues but i found for whatever reason that that's the, that adventure there was absolutely one of the best things they've put out in a long time i, I liked i liked fendover from what i played but i think i think i think we finished it in one of the games i'm not sure i had two different campaigns running through it it was it was neat i think um someone had written to me on facebook that they had run um they'd used the first stratosphine book with fendover for whatever reason and that made everything a lot weirder <laughs> so so i guess as we're kind of leading into so what is the terror of the stratus fiend terror of the stratus fiend so it all revolves around this idea that the this event called the drop happened and basically like all these portals opened and it, it does it sound like riffs it kind of is it riffs no <laughs> definitely inspired by but all these portals basically like opened and just humanity and time itself and just the world started to like uh warp and roil around and before you know it you know you have all these things like running through and you know i look at like my inspirations like starship troopers and stuff and i think that like this like in media res approach is kind of what i really wanted with terror of the stratosphere and it's like you pick up the book and it's like oh this has already happened this has already happened oh we're in the middle of it right now and you know like one of the initial ideas and i, I don't know if it got captured in the first one or not it was in this is in the savage worlds edition i didn't release was the idea that uh humans basically no nah, i did have it in there the humans basically started ru rushing through the portals as well and it's like wait you're also humans how did you get there and it's like that's not important we need to deal with this this thing this aggressor that's like spreading across the galaxy which is kind of like the stratosphere thing um and yeah you before you know it you have these giant tentacled monsters like walking through the the portals um, and they're massive and there's like this this weird thing where it's like are these actually just like mutated humans what's going on here and like stratosphere is kind of like an exploration of all those different ideas i call it like tentacles and sorcery uh you know in in the first issue uh was it yeah tentacles and sorcery there's also this idea of like these orbital intelligences like the, the two basic ideas that i had for stratosphere when it started was like these giant tentacled monsters and also the idea that people could pray to a satellite for guidance. Yeah, there was done in a, there was another OSR. I, for, I, I can't for, I for, can't remember for the life of me, where also the satellites were gods. 
Yeah, I haven't seen that one yet. I would love to check it out. I'd, I'd be really curious to see it. Like, I was definitely inspired by, like, uh, Philip K. Dick's Valis for that. Um, and that's, like, one of the things that we did in the first, it, or I did, in the first issue of Stratosphere. Um, I have uh, Skylasher, the Everlasting, which is basically the um, the Bat God. And the whole idea was it's just, like, a, a weapon satellite that was infected by a bat demon and then all of a sudden became this like living weapon satellite system. So the idea is like this entire defense grid that was surrounding the earth yeah. basically animated all of a sudden. I was actually just working on um, the drones for that, for Stratosphere 3, which are like more bat creations. The, the bat god has become like this ever-present thing all throughout Stratosphere, and I'm not entirely sure why. It just, I keep writing about it and I'm like, uh, maybe Stratosphere's about a bat god now. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it's about anymore. <laughs> So, so really the idea is is you can mix as much peanut butter and chocolate, whatever you want at any given moment, and you have the narrative legitimacy to do so. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all over the place. Like I've heard people talking about it, like kind of like a doom aspect to things and just like holding back demons and stuff. Like there is a bit of that and there's more stuff coming along those lines. Um, you know, one of the things that I really wanted was to have like these weird like living weapons, which <laughs> is like something I did in the first Stratosphere. And we do a bit with that with like, uh, like Saba and Power Rangers with the White Ranger and talking to his like his dagger. Like I try to do a lot of that stuff in Stratosphere and Stratosphere 2 builds upon that. So you have like these living weapons where your sword might be furry or something. Right. Or you might be able to talk to your sword. Or your sword might possess you or uh, it might have like blinking lights. So there's a whole weapon upgrade system. So really, it's kind of, if I may reiterate, it's not, it's kind of rifts as there's portals, but, but in general, what you're dealing with is these huge external threats that are because of these. Yes. Portals. And like, I, I had talked to some people about how just a bunch of different settings work. And I didn't really want to commit to making an entire setting on my own. I didn't want to commit to writing adventures on my own. I didn't want to commit to like a lot of the larger things that are like really hard to do. Yeah. So I tried to build um, Stratosfiend as like an overlay, like a um, almost like a toolkit. Yeah. And the idea is, you know, mix and match whatever this, like if you just want talking shotguns in your game, cool. If you want the bat god for your wizards to, to pray to, cool. If you just want these sat casters, the people that actually pray to the satellites and call down like hell from the sky like the hammer of dawn and like gears of war then cool bring that with you or if you want bring it all but the idea was just like these things could like passively warp your campaign so so this is an add-on so there's no uh terror of the stratosphere like main book these are all tempted they are the intent is these get bolted on to mutant crawl classics, right? Is that the a mutant or dungeon crawl classics? Yeah, okay. they, they go on, they go on both like pretty easily. Uh, eventually there's going to be an omnibus that like is like the core stratosphere book, but I'm probably a year or two out from that. I'm just so, okay. So there's going to be a core book. So at some point <laughs> at some point. So are you writing it from scratch? Are you working with the dungeon crawl classics people to, to do an edited version? Oh, for the big one, um, I'm not sure. Mostly because the, the the core book, the Omnibus, is like pretty far out there on my schedule. I still have like a couple. I'm calling them zines at this point, but they're like 72 page staple bound things at this point. <laughs> like, I don't know. I think there's like 300 pages of Stratosphere content that I've already released. So uh, yeah, I'm just trying to like get these things out there, and each one's kind of focusing on these different things. The first one was kind of like this is the beginning. This is how we got here. Here's some of the stuff in the world. The second one was 
uh, focusing on the elevator god and all the things that kind of go into that door magic. Um, uh, further things from inside of like the Stratosphere military. <laughs> so are you using these zines in a lot of ways to kind of explore different avenues and then they'll feed back into the core book? Yeah, my plan is to basically, like, after I'm done releasing, I think there's, like, four or five of them that I have planned, I'm going to bolt them all together and kind of see what makes sense and then rearrange stuff and edit from there. <laughs> it's kind of a lower invest, a lower risk investment for me going this way. <laughs> right. I understand. Um, so the so the Stratosphine, so it's for, uh, how well does that, um, with the Dungeon Hall Classics, I know of it. I'm not overly familiar, but it's, it's basically um, and one of the OSR games. I think it has mm -hmm. a few funny dice that you don't have to necessarily use. Yeah, it's got a couple. Um, it uh, it actually has a bunch. I actually threw them on the back of, um, or Glenn threw them on the back of uh, Two Worm, Two Furious for me so I could keep track of it. That's also what we, I, I built a whole, so Two Worm, Two Furious is the other DCC thing I write. Yeah. And that is entirely built around the dice chain. Okay. And the idea is basically, as I diverge, uh, the idea is basically that you have the worm grub that starts with the smallest dice, a die, and then as the game continues, the worm gets larger, so the die type increases, and you're rolling that on different tables, and the results on the tables get it, start getting like more and more brutal and grim and weird as the grub starts growing. So, yeah, I... I, I've been trying, in general, I've been trying to lean into what DCC does well. Um, like, so for Stratosphine, a lot of it for me is like, I thought the spell tables are really cool. So one of the things in DCC, um, not sure how familiar with, with the spellcasting system um, you are. So as opposed to like spell slots that are in um, 5e, the way that spellcasting works in DCC is that uh, when you go to cast the spell, there's some modifiers to it. And there's basically a table, depending on the results of the table, you could lose the spell for a day. You could end up like mutated with a crab claw or something, or there's something like 13 different results for what right. could come out of the spell. So if you cast fireball, it's very possible for you to like basically set off a Zippo lighter and be like, oops, that wasn't useful. Or to call down like an earth shattering meteor and be like, sorry guys, I TPK'd us. I tried. <laughs> um, so I tried to build on that for uh Stratosphine. And Stratosphine is definitely a love letter to wizards and a love letter to, uh, sorry, the, the concept of a wizard um, and to uh, like the wizardly patrons. So that's that's why I have these orbital intelligences that I've built up. Like you have the bat god, you have uh, Terror Eater, the earth mother, who's basically like the, the giant tentacle god that lives inside of the earth. Whereas it like a shell. Um, since then there's the elevator god, who is the god of all elevators. It's important to have these gods. Right. <laughs> you have uh, the muscle god, who's the god of muscles. Uh, it's like a giant mutated mass of, it looks like something out of Akira. <laughs> I like that one a lot. Um, there's two more gods coming in Stratosphere 3. I have um, Enamel Cortex, who's like my surgical god. He's like a god of like surgery, as opposed to like a medical god. It's yeah. like a whole thing that I'm doing. Um, and then I also have like a god of mold that's coming soon. And then later on, there's a centipede god and there's a surreal box god. It's the god of surreal boxes. Yes. <laughs> Very cool. So what what decided uh, or what made you decide to to go this route? I mean, so you're you are doing the this for Savage Worlds. So I mean, what was the so I know that you kind of mentioned the riffs, but this is kind of a, a strange mixture of peanut butter and chocolate. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, why did I go with the rule set or why did I go with the content? The, the content, the theme, the the idea. I mean, I, I don't think that having like pocket dimensions or dimensional breaches, none of that's really that unique. I don't think it's really even that unusual to, to kind of throw in the, the weird sci-fi fantasy mixture, but I don't know that I've quite seen anything, you know, mixed quite like what you did here with the Stratosphere. <laughs> You know, it's like I, I look at things that I like, like media that I really like, like I forever ago, I was charged by a different company with doing some cyberpunk stuff for them. And they wanted me to do something different. And when I think cyberpunk, my brain immediately goes to Predator 2 and uh, Total Recall. <laughs> like when I think cyberpunk, I think right. of that, which is probably more post-apocalypse than anything. Right. So like that's kind of like the direction I was going. And it's like, how would this make sense in Total Recall? Total Recall, or how would this make sense in Predator 2, or how would this make sense in Starship Troopers? And those are kind of like the larger inspirations that I have that kind of got me where I am. But, you know, it's also like a love letter to riffs. I love riffs. Like the Stratosphere kind of remind me of the some of the Splugorth, but it, I definitely went a different direction with them just to, to because I am making something different. I don't want to yeah, be riffs. But, but you're, but you're doing, but you went to with the fantasy mashing with this rather than the, the modern. Or yeah, yeah. Well, so I, the idea is that because everything kind of got plane shifted, it was a argument to have modern stuff in fantasy, as opposed to the other way around, as opposed to having a modern game playing fantasy stuff. Right. So I, we, we actually only mess around with fantasy in one book, Orbital only messes with fantasy in one of the Stratosphere books, and that's uh, Fay Harder. Um, and that it was me basically talking with uh, James and I need to remember the other name. Because <laughs> uh, I want to make sure that I get everyone over at Shinobi 27 um, games. I'll, I'll remember the name later. Uh, but yeah, basically the idea was that um, James had written Fay Hard, which was a DCC adventure with the Shinobi 27 um, group. And it, we had been talking on Twitter back and forth of like how it could be hilarious to do like a Die Hard 2 right. <laughs> with, with Stratosphere and Fay Hard. Um, so we, we, we did it. It's, it's definitely weird. There's a space station. It's in the process of exploding. It's full of the Fey. It's like the only fantasy exploration that we've done. That's the piece that Diego did uh, for us, which is basically like a tentacle Rex, basically ripping through a portal and attacking some elves. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So you've also uh, did this uh, not only using the um, Dungeon Crawl Classics, but also the Troikia. Yes. So I've only i th i think i they were giving it away a year ago the pdf i think i downloaded it i never really delved deep into it so maybe you could just give me a, a just a high level view of troikias what what exactly how would you explain how that game works yeah 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 so it's a 2d6 system and the idea is basically everyone has like skill and advanced skill and basically you're creating your own target numbers to roll under based on your innate skill and what skill what levels you have or ranks you have in the skills that you learn. So, um, and then you also roll against enemies for their skills and stuff. I think that's a that's a terrible way to explain what Troika is. Um, but what I like is the simplicity of it. Like their inventory system is fantastic. Like you have inventory, you have 12 slots. You don't have to worry about encumbrance. You have 12 slots of inventory. So do, certain, do, you have 12... do certain things take more than one slot? They can. And I do stuff with that with Stratosphere as well. But what's neat about it is that the slots are numbered. So when you have to grab something quickly, you have to roll uh, over the slot to grab it uh, with 2d6. So let's say that you have your bag and you have your gun at the top of your right. bag and you have like, let's say you have your sword at the bottom of your bag and some guy challenges you to a duel 
and you're like, okay, cool. I'll, I'll be able to parry his first hit. And it's like, oh, nope, couldn't grab my sword in time. I grabbed nothing. <laughs> that kind of thing. Like it's, it's a neat concept and I've been trying to think more about it. I, I think that the uh, damage in Troika is really interesting because basically every item basically has its own uh, damage scale. Um, so like you roll a D6 to figure out how much damage you do. So like if you roll a six, you don't necessarily do six damage. You could do 27 damage depending on the sword or the gun or whatever it is that you're using, which I think is like really interesting. And it, it, it allows them to basically create their own damage curves for all the weapons that kind of make sense. Yeah, well, I, yeah, because here's the deal. It's like I played uh, the hero system for a long time, champions. And the problem is the more dice you have, the more powerful your blast, but also that the distribution curve also forces you to the middle. Yeah, it gets it gets weird. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's great to roll 10 D6, but in some ways you're kind of more messed up than somebody rolling one D6 as far as they have the potential <laughs> to do maximum damage and you statistically never will. You're gonna be stuck at like the what, 10 D6, like the 30 range. Yeah. So or to 25, but yeah, it's 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 rough. And um that's one of the things that I like about it. And then when I when I did Turn Willow, which is my my mech game for uh Troika, I, I went ahead and as opposed to having like all the different um items having their own damage scales, I just have damage classes light, medium, heavy, ultra. And then it's like this staff is, is a light staff or a medium staff or an ultra staff. I don't I don't really think about all the individual damage scales. I wrote right. like four damage scales for Turn Willow. Um the other thing that I like about Troika a lot is their initiative, which I think creates for a very interesting like frenetic combat. Um, so th there's two things to think about with that. It's like when you um, roll to attack somebody or like when you, when, you, when you engage someone in physical combat, you're basically rolling your, whatever your fighting skill is against their fighting skill. Whoever wins is the one who deals damage in that case. So like the defender can deal damage. So you end up in a situation where let's say that five characters all attack like a goblin. Yeah. They could all fail their attack rolls and that goblin has just now attacked five people and never taken its turn yet. It's kind which of is like, yeah, it's kind of like Dungeon World, right? Or uh, Powered by the Apocalypse. Kind of, Be yeah. Because you either succeed, succeed with a complication, or you uh, the DM makes a move against you. But no matter what happens, every time you roll the dice, something happens. Yes, yes, something is going to happen. It'll either be someone gets hit, or the other person gets hit, or yeah. there's like a, a mighty blow, or the whole clink thing when their weapons fly apart. Something is going to happen. And that's like just the like the attacking and damaging part of it. The part that makes it really, I think, wild to me that I love is the actual initiative stack. And the idea is that every character, uh, friend or foe, has a certain number of tokens they throw in the pot. And there's also an end of round token that goes in too. So you end up in this weird situation where it's possible that you never take an action during combat because the end of round token comes up and you have to restart the whole initiative stack oh, again. Oh, wow. But because of the uh, the defenders can deal damage to the attackers, it still balances out in a way that makes sense. So you can have a situation where like an enemy goblin never actually takes its turn, but still TPK is the party. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, or vice versa. So like it gets really interesting. Um, I think it's cool. <laughs> well, I think the problem is, I mean, in, in most systems, I mean, the idea that the, you know, the meta knowledge that the players have, you know, and if you're, if you're really a person in that situation, you're not going to say, oh, I go, then he goes, and I go, then he goes. When you can, can condense down actual combat, it's never really like that. You know, I mean, there's no, well, you know, there isn't. So, and I think the idea is you can't always say, well, I get this, therefore I know next time I can do this, I can combine these two knowing this. You don't know that. 
you may not get that second chance. This may be your only chance. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's very possible. It's possible that the end of round token comes up three times before anyone acts. Yeah, right? like there's all these things that happen. And um, I think with the later, I think with Nime, I'm trying to think what other books I have. I think with one of the books, I try to mess with the token system so that someone adds like an extra end of round token to the the bucket as opposed to like an extra initiative token and all those other weird things. Because yeah. I think there's like a really cool system there. And I think that the initiative system also works really nicely for um, abstract concepts like chases. Like Savage Worlds has, over the last two editions of Savage Worlds that I've played, uh, they've, they've invented a lot of different ways to deal with chases and they're all kind of weird. But the initiative system in Troika, I think, handles all those situations pretty well. It's like, you don't have to really think about like, am I in a position of advantage or disadvantage? It's like, did my thing come up? Okay, cool. You can assume that my character like somehow got in front of the other guy or could take the shot. Yeah, I think the thing with chases is, I mean, they they are the most exciting thing, or maybe not the most, but they're very exciting to watch, you know, in the movies and TV shows, but they're the most boring thing at the table. <laughs> it's like, they're hard. It's like when you went, when you went from um, Savage Worlds Explorer Edition, so Swex to Suede to the, the newest edition, they, they went to a more tactical chase versus a more uh, abstract chase. And I think that for the tactical gamers, it definitely gave them that thing that they wanted but you lose the abstract part which is like who's on first right. like what's going on right now and like it really does feel like that whole uh cartoon of like just spinning fists like i, I miss that of just like what's happening i don't know okay cool one guy's left at the end <laughs> i think one thing that was interesting i think it was in fate somebody did where for a chase the person who's being chased chose the difficulty level so you could determine if you're going to run through boxes and through a crowded mall you're going to determine the difficulty level, but it also is affecting both of you the same. And, that makes sense. And so I think until you succeed and they fail, uh, they're going to keep chasing you. Yeah, I, I like that idea. I I think in the majority, like for me, like most of the content that I write is supporting systems and I haven't really got around to like writing my own systems, nor do I really care to. <laughs> I'm really happy to support support them <laughs> whenever I can. Yeah, and I think the thing is like, if you ever played uh, any of the Cortex games, so what it does is to roll for success, basically you have a pool of dice and they're different size based on attributes. You roll them all, you generally take the, the two highest numbers results, put them together, compare it to the other person's highest number. But you can also pick a die type is one way of doing it which is separate and that's your effect. So you could have a couple D8s give you a high number, but maybe your effect die is only a D4, which is very small. But what happens is you're, you're, you have abilities that allow you to manipulate that pool. Okay. So that's where I think things get interesting is where it's not just when you have a dice pool or you could even have a token system you can easily add a, a character to have their powers affect that system. That's cool. Yeah, no, that's pretty neat. Because it may, maybe, you know, maybe one person's special power is to automatically end the, the initiative for that, you know, the, you know, the end of round or whatever, you know, that could be a person's initiative or maybe a person's initiative is one time a, a combat. They, they take it away. They don't have to. No, I think I think there's there's a lot of really cool things that you can do with that. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, that's something I kind of want to look at too because I mean, I 
initiative, I mean, the way we have normally do it is I just, one that works fairly well for most any system is whoever initiates a combat chooses first or, or goes and they choose the next person. And then that person chooses the next person. But what keeps it from, from that way characters can, if you want a game where characters can work as a team, it works really well. But if they choose all their own people, then eventually goes to the bad guys, they get to choose all their people. Then this is the start of a new round and they get to start again and choose all their people again. So you have to manage who goes in which order. Oh, okay. I see. I see. I mean, there are so many ways of doing initiative and all provide a different kind of feel. So I think for your system, now the system you use in Troika is very fun where you want chaos. Yes. This other initiative system is great when you say, I want people to be competent people like in a like in the leverage TV show or or whatever. These are competent people. These are not just but it but it eliminates the chaos, but but that the Troika system, it does it it at least people on edge the whole time. Yeah. The um Savage World are you familiar with the Savage Worlds uh, initiative system? It's it, it's it's you draw the cards and it's based on the suit and the number. Yeah, that's entirely that. Um, it's suit and number, but uh, there's a fair amount of abilities and like like skills that you can get for your characters that more or less uh, change the way all of that applies. Like you might get, uh, oh God, was it level-headed, I think, that allows you to draw two or three cards and then you pick whichever card that you want. Um, there's like a whole bunch of triggers that happen when a joker gets drawn. Right. Yeah, it's there's a lot of like interesting things. You have like quick or like fast or nimble. I can't remember what it was. But basically, if you draw anything under like a five, you just redraw that kind of thing. I think for me, and this is going to be maybe kind of controversial, but my take on Savage Worlds is it obviously has its war game roots, uh, the miniatures. It, def it definitely does. <laughs> and I think it needed this last, the, I know they didn't, whatever the last revision, I think they should have just re re rehauled the whole, overhauled the whole thing. I think there's so much stuff that's good, but there's also some stuff that's just clunky. And it's just, but it is a very fun, fast system. Yeah, the uh, remembering how like the wound system works is kind of wild sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> like and the, also like the, it's every, what, every four that you succeed by or five, it steps up one and- It's by four, yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, these are just, <laughs> I just, those types of things are just, and they, they give you the helps on the character sheets, but I find sometimes, unless you really comprehend that, that's confusing. And I find, I've found that people, even though it's a fairly straightforward system, it's like people, I, my players had problems kind of grokking it for whatever reason. And the initiative system, I think, is super, except you have to remember the order of the suits. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, why'd you do that? <laughs> why'd you just do, you know, one through through king and, and then split it off by dexterity or, or just say you both go simultaneously? Because now it's just like, I can't remember what the order is now. It's like, but it's, it is a great system. I just think it's just some of those things could have simplified, but do you have a hard stop yeah. coming up here? Uh, yeah, right. 11. We can always do another one of these at some point. Take care, man. Thanks. Cool. Have a good one. It is time for a deep dive. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to have me back again. 
So here we're going to talk about uh, gangbusters specifically and that you acquired the IP for, for gangbusters. And I think for many of us, I mean, that's, it's a very unusual thing. I don't know of, known of anybody to have ever acquired an IP. And I know that while your situation may be different than other IPs that may be acquired, I think that journey that you took is actually um, well, well worth exploring in case other people want to do the, a similar type thing. So the question I have for you is like, what was the um, starting point? What drew you into uh, pursuing um, the idea of purchasing the IP for gangbusters? I used to play gangbusters all the time. And I thought, you know what? I don't see it out anywhere. I'm gonna try to find out what happened to this old game. So I tried to track down who was it, the groups, different things. So this goes all the way back to the G plus days. Oh yeah. So I joined a G plus group and got into that stuff. And you know, I said, you know what? I'd like to do something for it. So I start looking around and see who the author was and track down who had what and where and start making in contacts. So, so you said start making contacts. What do you mean you started making? What does that mean that you started making contacts? Like, where'd you start? Well, and I started right there in the G plus group. Find out who's in it, who's supporting it, who's connected to the game, who I could get in touch with. You have to find your initial link. If so, you can find the altar, that's great. So you, so you did as you went through, if you just opened up the gangbusters, as I'm doing now, <clears throat> and I see that it was the original concept by, was by Rick Krebs, designed by Mark Akers. And we also see people like Moldvay, uh, Tom Moldvay um, as well, and some other names. So is that where you started with, was with, with the people who wrote this, authored it? That's correct. Well, because I knew, you know, TSR, of course, was defunct. And that one, didn't, you need to kind of figure out, you know, a lot of the rights and stuff got reverted back to some games. Wizard of Coast, of course, snatched up others. So you had to try to get initial, okay, who owns what? So let's start at the source. Let's find out what the author does and what do they know? So is the assumption that if, if the uh, company uh, was to no longer lay claim to it, it would revert back to the author. Is that what the normal thought process is? Yes. Unless, you know, it's part of the deal and you won't know until you start digging into it. You know, usually sometimes you get a hold of the author and goes, oh no, I don't own that. That was part of the deal. And poof, it's done away with. That way, all right, unless you got, you know, some kind of unusual connections to the parent company that we've got sold off into odds of you getting it from them are slim to none right and so google plus was a social community kind of like google's attempt to for for those of you who are too young the, it was a, their attempt to take on facebook which i think for certain communities like gamers it was the most amazing thing that ever existed and only existed for a handful of years and then died on the vine as they killed all the nutrients to the fruit and it fell. And we all have fallen different places and we've never been together again. <clears throat> so, but that was a, a place where you could easily go find. I mean, it was just a, a, a place where anybody that was gaming was on G plus. So, so 
you tried finding the authors, which was a good place. So how did how did that work out for you as far as using yeah. that method? So I found somebody who had who knew it was like six degrees of separation. Right. You find somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody, and then you find up getting in contact with him. Then I tracked down his old web page out there. Then I found, you know, start reading through some of his old blogs. Then I figured, okay, I'm gonna make the contact and ask and see what's going on. After, you know, I've posted enough stuff on the G Plus page to know that I'm serious about gangbusters. I'm not just some fly by night guy that's, you know, jumping out of the blue. You have to become known for what you, you know, in the community, different stuff. Like, so I, for instance, he had, he had said uh, basically uh, somebody had attempted it before, but they never followed through. They never contacted him, never. They said, oh, yeah, I'd like to do it. As oh. far as it went. Right. You know, I could have, should have, would have, but they never got off the pot. <laughs> so, so, so then your initial uh, contact, if I may, <clears throat> can't go back to this. So was he kind of like hesitant then to like, you're just another one of those people or what, what was his initial attitudes? I think he was kind of surprised to see that I actually, you know, did what I said I was going to do. <laughs> Because I put out the very, 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 very first a little venture for Gangbusters in 35 years. Well, oh, it's oh. called. Uh, I said, okay, I'm gonna put something out there. So I put it up on the um, on the group, some stuff for it. And, oh wow, this is great, you know. And then it was kind of cool to see, get some feedback from him, the actual, you know, author. So you're and producing. Was, so you start producing content like adventure content. Yeah, just, you know, characters. Like I did stats for Charlie Chan. I did stats for Humphrey Bogart. All the different guys. And I would post it on, you know, onto the G Plus page and different stuff. You know, so start to get some interest and let people know that different stuff's coming. Just to see people gauge their response to the original system if it's still out there. And of course, start doing that. And that notice we picked up probably two or three hundred extra people to our page. You know, when I start doing that, more and more people start coming to the page. Yeah, you, you so write start, it, you write it and they will come. And I'm like, oh, there's a market. There's a little market there, you know. So, so at I that see, point, you know, was he on Google Plus at the time or did you kind of coax him, you know, to Google Plus or, or what? He was there. He was on there. But I don't know how often he was, you know, actually on, but his, he had an account on there. So, so were you the admin he was for? In the group. Did you own the? Do you own that group? The uh, the Gangbusters no. group? No, I do not. I'm not the admin. Okay, so you started putting stuff out, and then he's like, "Oh, Mark's kind of serious. He's not just another one of those people just throwing out bait with nothing really to back it up." And, um, and then then you start writing. Did you start writing adventures for it? Then I, I asked him, I said, hey, I'd like to, you know, do something about it. He said, okay, go ahead. So I wrote um, the very first adventure, what was it called? Uh, Joe's Diner. Joe's Diner, instant hit, boom. Came out there, and that went off. Very, very first one. It was only probably like 17 pages, something small. Basically, and that boom, went off, so I expanded it out to 48 pages. You know, so that did extremely well. I was really surprised how well that did. So then I wrote, during this time, I was, you know, so of course I put this out there. Then 
I was like, uh, oh, okay. I got a, a note from like, oh, somebody was like, oh, you can't put this out there. You're stealing this guy's IP. And, and, I, and I explained to my, like, I have permission to do this. So, you know, somebody, of course, wanted to be a do-gooder and didn't know what they were talking about. It jumped right. in the middle of it. So then they got on, um, they got a hold of uh, Drive Through RPG, where I had it on there. And then they got taken down from Drive Through RPG. And then they were like, oh. So this was like, I was in limbo during the time, during that time, of course, waiting to see what they're going to do. So I had got, oh, by the end of that, I, I had already filed for my paperwork on it. You know, to have the uh, IP and everything. That's what I thought it was okay for me to go ahead stuff because I already had the paperwork in the rolling. Okay. So they contacted, of course, Wizard of Coast. Wizard of Coast contacted them. Their lawyers got involved because they didn't want to be, you know, liable for someone stealing someone else's IP. So all the lawyers got involved. And I showed them my paperwork, showed them my stuff. And basically four days later, I was back up and running. Because I had all my ducks in a row. <laughs> so so what what year was this that we're talking? Oh geez. You're just roughly. So this is this is when D D was we're talking ago. about how much? It was ways. It was a couple of years ago. Yeah. So is this back in when it was um like fourth edition, fifth edition era for no, fifth edition. Okay, so this fifth is edition. So it's pretty recent. Yep. And so at this point, you know. TSR hasn't done anything for for a long, long, I mean, for decades with this product. And at that point, the product did revert completely over to the author at this. Yes, correct. Okay. So he, the I, author, the, so the author owns, <clears throat> so the author owns the IP, the author owns the text in the book, right? Yep. All the IP and, and stuff. And but the, who owns the who owns the art in the book? The art belongs to uh, Holloway. Okay, so the artist because I noticed there's know. Holloway did the majority of it, but it looks like there's also a, um, a couple other artists. So so the art reverts back to Holloway. So the publishing. So at this point, <clears throat> could the author, if he chose, he could have public republished Gangbusters, right? Just as it was without the art, without getting unless he. Got the permission. Right. And I had talked to him about, you know, doing reprints like that. And he said he wasn't interested in doing another printing. And I told him, well, what about a retro clone? He goes, well, yeah, I can see that. That's retro clone, he goes, yeah, I think you can do it. So I said, okay. And that's when I start, you know, really getting the legal. I had to get like an IP search to make sure it was not, you know, get the copyright done. Okay. So, go through. so before you get that far, so all of a sudden you're like, okay. You know that you're going to have to, even if you two both agree to this, right? Right. Before you say, you know, you, this person owns intellectual property, clearly owns it. There's no disputing it. <clears throat> you're wanting to buy uh, the IP. You want you're wanting to buy it at this time, right? Yep. I want, I want to be the one who I own the trademark IP. I got it all. So all before then, you try talking into. He's like, no, and you're like, hey, I will do it. And and let's say, did so? Did you two at this point? I'm not gonna uh, discuss. I'm not gonna get in details. But did you guys discuss a price at this point? Like, 
I will buy this from you for this amount of money. At this point, <clears throat> he was more interested in seeing someone keep his game alive. Okay. So he's like, yeah, I'll sell it to you because I believe in you, Mark. I've seen what you've done. I've seen your passion. I've seen your work. I've seen the quality of work. And I believe you're going to be, you know, he, he, he blesses you as the, the, the heir apparent, right? So, yep. and even though you both agree, it requires lawyers for some, some reasons that you, you've mentioned here. So one of the things you mentioned, uh, so what was the first thing that has to be determined to ensure that, that you're, that you're free to buy this is what? You got to do a copy. You got to do a, a, a trade, like for instance, a trade name, mark the name. Then you have you have to do a search. Make sure no one else has a claim against it. Okay, so that is just to be able to say a game gangbusters. named Gangbusters. Gangbusters RPG. I'm the Gangbusters role playing game. Is Mark Hunt? I own Boom. That's my name. I own. Look in the the government website for Gangbusters. I'm listed as the owner. So the question would have been: Is what things? Do you know what things could have happened? Like <laughs> oh yeah. So what were the things that could have cut, like, just say you would not have known you hadn't done the search? What what weird stuff could have tangled? Say, for instance, if someone that would have had a lien against it or someone owned, say, okay, I, I applied for it and say, no, I own the game rights to Game Busters. Somebody could have stepped forward and said that. Then I would have had to work that out before I could go forward. Yeah, and I think we... I don't think as a public we see that a lot, but I think there's occasionally um, intellectual property we do know that gets tied up because somebody options a thing, like, and then they sell that option to somebody else, and then yep. it, it can get kind of weird. So somebody could have, in the meantime, either went to the author, said that the author, owner of this owes me money, and because he owes me money, I'm going to put a lien against this uh, asset of his, which would be the intellectual property, yeah. or it could be somebody else could have also had a claim, a better claim or whatever that would have meant that once you went, you would have paid it, you would not have been able to use it legally. Right. Right. I could, so, I, the, my trademark would have been denied. My trademark search, it would have been when they would have done like a public addressing. If say, for instance, Wizard of the Coast could have stepped forward and says, no, now we on second thought. Now we're gonna put a claim on that, and there's so no way I could have. I've done it, you know. So in many ways, this isn't that far off from buying a house. Pretty much. Well, if you look at, um, for instance, uh, Star Frontiers. Yes. That's what happened to that. <laughs> that same thing came up. Well, TSR maintains the ownership of the copyright for that, right? No. Oh, that's right, because it went up because Fred Hicks was going to buy it. Then he, whatever. <laughs> See, that that's the thing. That's right, because the, the Star Frontiers, this is really weird, because are you, um, so Star Frontiers, um, Fred Hicks wanted to buy the, the trademark Star Frontiers, but that fell apart. Didn't TSR rattle, rattle the sabers or something? Uh, you got to ask their legal team, but I think somebody stepped in to stop it. Because right now there's um, there's a group of people who have been putting out Star Frontiers content, I think up until recently, and TSR has pretty much allowed them for free to put out 
reprints of the older material. I think that's kind of changed more recently since they started doing stuff through drive through, <clears throat> but they're still able to put stuff out through, I think, Star Frontiersman magazine. <clears throat> so, you know, that's definitely one for whatever reason, TSR has never let go, which is sad. Yeah, very sad because I would love to grab it. <laughs> I think you and a lot of people, but, but anyway, I, I, I eyeballed it real hard. <laughs> I, uh, I yeah. will uh, say that. Um, yeah. So we'll, we'll put that aside because I think we could, this is a rabbit hole. We could go way down because <laughs> yeah. it is one of those IPs that I absolutely love. I just never love the mechanics, but I love, I think what ends up really being is the art that gives yeah. a certain feeling. But anyhow, but that being able to say, so we do have samples or examples of other TSR properties that were not in use anymore, but did not revert back to the authors. Right. And then you also have another one, Top Secret, that did revert back and then was picked back up. Yes. He decided to put out another one. That shows examples that, that once he got the back, he decided was contacted with somebody else who did another Top Secret. That's an example of that. Another okay. Example. So, so, and, and I guess, so at this point, then you, to do these searches, I'm assuming you hired a, a lawyer for this. Yeah. You have to hire a lawyer because they have to look and cost. No one's, I don't want to go to fly to Washington, D.C. and search through all their archives myself. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it doesn't make for an exciting TV show, does it? So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So you decide, you know what, I, I'm going to have to lawyer up. So did you like open up the yellow pages and say uh, A and A um, or Allen and Allen lawyers? Or did you, well, how did you find out? Who you... Asked, asked a few people, did I know a few people? And then com combination with, you know, yellow pages. And so I found one that I thought was reasonable price I could afford. And <laughs> Okay, so let's give it a shot. So is this a lawyer that you found that was local or one that you found somewhere else in the U.S.? Somewhere else in the U.S. Okay. So you, you, you call around, you find an IP lawyer, and he says, yes, I can do this. And I, I'm assuming that, uh, he charges, um, I assume him, I don't know. But the, the, it's a him. It's okay. a firm. <laughs> the firm charges, I'm assuming, an hourly rate. And they charge a decent rate, yes. <laughs> yeah, so they, yeah. they charge an hourly rate. It's not cheap. And so, and I think, you know, if you just talk to them for 10 minutes, you're, you're going to be spending all the money. So this isn't <laughs> cheap. So anyhow, so you you so you so went through all this. I mean, this is this is commitment here, right? So you're, you yeah, know, this you is... explain the situation, you know. This is do re me. You, this you got to put some, you know, whatever, whatever you worked out uh, with the author is one thing, but now you have to go the next step and you have to have a lawyer just to make sure your, your property's clear. Right. Your trademark's clear. So, okay. So you find the lawyer, you agree on the price, the rate, whatever. And, um, the, um, so the next step is paying government you, fees in government fees. And so yeah. the next step then is, uh, they, they go through all that and it's clear. Then what happens? Okay. Woo. Got the trademark. Woo. I'm officially known as such and such who can now put 
legally in the United, you know, underneath that. Then of course you need the ISBN number, so you got to pay for that. <laughs> so you right. can have a number for that. And, that, and that's start, true for and that's true for really any book that you want to have. Uh, so what is the ISB now? Because I mean, if you want to publish any book, you, you well, I say it's not true. I think for larger volumes of sales, people do the ISB. What does that do for you? ISBN. That way, it puts you in the catalog, the you know, international catalog book number. So you can people can have this number. You can pipe in the ISBN number, and they can order and find your book. So they can tell if you're registered, if you're real. Like if you go through drive through RP, if you do appeal, print on demand books, most of them demand right. that you have a ISBN number. It's just help so you have an official catalog, so your official book. And so, 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 so now you've done this, but but you've not written anything yet, right? Oh, I've I've been writing in the meanwhile because this was this is not a a uh, a quick process. Everyone has, because like, for instance, there's like a, I think it's like a, a, 40, a 40 or 60 day window that anyone can come forward and say no. So you gotta wait through all this time. So you wanna keep the ball rolling by doing stuff, writing and stuff. So meanwhile, but in the meanwhile, it still can get shot down. <laughs> wow. But I, I'm assuming you felt pretty confident that, that it was all gonna work out. Yeah, I was I was pretty set. Once I, I figured it was going to work, but I, I think once know. TSR once TSR declared probably once TSR declared they they weren't holding any ownership of it. I'm sure that took a lot of the 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 legal weight off at that. Which is the coast? Okay. Yes. <laughs> once they said <laughs> not TSR, they were gone. That's right. <laughs> when the you know the 800 pound grill in the room said, "Nah, we're not going to mess with it." Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, you feel a little better after that. So then, so at that point, then, uh, so then you you're you've you've been writing, and and as we talked previously, um, used a you went through a Tall Tales RPG that you went through to kind of do proof of concepts. So then you've 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 got this thing written. Then, what's next? Layout, uh, touring, showing it to people. Went to, uh, I did like uh, 60 proof of concept box sets to Gary Khan. They were gone before Gary Khan started. Wow. <laughs> I think they lasted a half hour. So, so what's in the box set? Uh, rules. Uh, it was a, uh, a play, uh, dice. Uh, character sheet rules for the original game system for the D, you know, D20. I mean, the D100 system. Okay. It's for the original game systems. Okay. And I did a couple of original adventures for the original game mechanics. Like um, A Time of Tree Saved My Life, Welcome to Rock Junction. Uh, all the, there's like four or five different adventures for the original game mechanics and as well as character cards. Oh, I guess going back, because uh, you wrote, from my understanding is, so why did you not use the author's uh, work? Why did you need to go to a different system? Because he didn't really want that system re-published. 
he thought it was fine the way it is, and he didn't want to do a re reissue of the book. So I was in a, I want to respect his wishes. So I was like, right. okay, I have to change the mechanics in order to make it work. So I was thinking about, you know, but I did, you know, I made support material. I used, you know, so I made support material for the original game. And I so what, a lot of that. Was, it, was that kind of daunting at that point? Were you expecting to get his, his actual system and writing? So was it like a surprise? It wasn't a way, but... Eh, it was something you could work around. At least I got to do what I wanted to do. <laughs> just, just take a little bit longer, right? So yeah, just something a little longer, you know. Because <laughs> I mean, that you know, in in uh, you know, you know, flipping through this, I mean, it, it definitely is a product of its time, in both the positive and the negatives. And uh, there's just a there's a lot of really good information in there, and and. Did you try getting uh, use of Howley's art? By the time I got around to getting some of his art and stuff into it, he was too sick into, you know. So that was off the off the table. Oh, that's that's too bad because I mean, uh, I think I good money to have him do a cover. Oh, yeah. I, I, I came deep out of pocket. But Seriously. but even for even for the art that he used for the original, there was no option for reusing that. I haven't really, you know, okay. talked to his son about that. I I was thinking about it, but it was too. By the time his father had just passed around that time, and I didn't want to breach that. You know, right, 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 right. <laughs> Be the vulture and say, know? "Hey, I know your dad died, and I, I know you're grieving, and I know you're sad, and I know this is a very hard time, but." If I give you some money, would you give me some of his art to use? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of poor taste. You give me a solid right now. <laughs> that that was not, you know, <laughs> nothing I wanted to get into. <laughs> because it was a little I, hard. How about a, you know? <laughs> I I I think Holloway. I think less for D and D, but for Star Frontiers and for Gangbusters. I mean, his work is so absolutely evocative. I mean, it just yes. is communicates so much personality and, you know, and even as, as I was flipping through this, uh, you know, there's a scene of a guy passed out on the floor holding oh, a martini yes. glass and the martini <laughs> yeah. glass is flat against the floor and he doesn't have any pants on and you've got inspectors and cops and journalists taking a picture of this body face down on the floor. And it's just like, I, I it just it's just genius. It's just like the man yeah. just exuded. <laughs> I don't know what he if he got paid well or not for for the work he did, but I I think he definitely uh, is definitely, definitely um, inspired me. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like <laughs> okay. So so then you had to commission some art. I, yeah. I'm assuming, or did you use clip art or um, I um, use line art. Line I art. Old public domain art. I have all, I did a huge search to find and then make sure that was clear. <laughs> yeah. And and so for your covers for like your adventures and such, are you using uh, public domain pulp covers? Yes. Yeah. So, so that, that's a pain to make sure those are clear. <laughs> right. You mean, you're saying just because on the internet it says it's public domain, does it mean that it is public domain? <laughs> and it's correct. <laughs> just because it says it doesn't mean it is. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was 
I was just doing a, uh, just off topic, but I'm, I was writing, um, doing a supplemental. I'm trying to do like a, a Conan style, um, setting adventure set in like in the, um, Afghanistan area. And so I looked up and most of the names now are, are Muslim names. I was trying to find, there's no easy way to find pre-Muslim names. So, right. so I find this name, the male name. And I read it, it says something like a beautiful woman is the, the meaning. I'm like, you said this is a male's name. There's no re- way a male is going to be named a beautiful yes. woman. I'm like that. It's just like, <laughs> I can't even trust baby name books. No, no. <laughs> you, have to, you have to look. No, so you can't just take what you see. It doesn't mean it's true, you know. No, I just found that out today. No. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, so that being said, so you went through and you said, you know what, I there's a treasure trove of unused uh, pulp art out there, pulp stuff from pulp novels and such, and uh, and it's like absolutely fitting for what you're wanting to do. So there's no, right, there's no needing to do anything else than that. So that works out good. So you're able to keep your costs down. So who <laughs> yeah. did the who, who did the layout for your for your book? I did. So you did the layout. So what did you use for your layout? Let's see here. At first, I did some of my original work was done in uh, Word at first. And then this one was done in, uh, oh, geez, what's the most recent one I did? That one's in, not, uh, oh, geez, my brain, it went blank. Uh, Affinity, Affinity Publisher. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was done in Affinity Publisher. So I purchased that, taught myself how to figure that out best I could, then went to town. <laughs> yeah, that's, I think now, that's what a lot of us are doing, right? Because I don't think what people realize yeah. is that to actually make things happen or make things affordable, um, a person has to learn everything. You have to be everything. You have to be the art director. You have to be the layout person. You might have to even throw up some sketchy art that you kind of figure out yourself. You've got to learn all these skills because there's really not enough money in it to say, I'm going to hire a team of people. Now, get this now. Meanwhile, I'm still, I'm going through chemo for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Oh, I'm going what? through chemo through all this. Yeah, I'm going through chemo and cancer treatments during all this process. So when in, when did you find out you had cancer that started this whole thing? Like We're in the process of like, of of this whole uh, gangbusters thing, did you all of a sudden you find out you have cancer? Uh, about she's about a year and a half into it, right? Okay. Into when I decided to go, you know, really apply myself to it. Once I put down a bunch of money, <laughs> that's when yeah. I found out. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know how that works out. <laughs> yeah. So you you you're going along, and then you get the the, the terrible news. I'm sure you're going through. And then you're going through, if you're going through chemotherapy, I'm assuming it's a pretty aggressive uh, treatment. Yeah, it was bad. Yes. And, um, and I encourage, cause you also cover that pretty poignantly in your, in your introduction. I think then the guy next to you, they kind of basically yeah. pulled out the, 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 the thing and yeah, said, he, well, it's not going to be any good. You're about dead anyway. And yeah, he had great cancer metastasizing to his brain. I'm sitting there. I was. I'll never forget. I'm sitting there, and the guy was like, "They basically, the doctor came up to him and says, you might as well.' You know, we got the test back. 
go home and start getting your, you know, it's done. You got six months. It's over. It's pretty much, you know, and there's no way, there's no easy way to tell somebody it's over, you know? Right. And you look at me, you know, and I'm sitting next to this guy and I'm thinking, you know what? If I'm going to do this, now is the time. And that was like a rekindle spark. And I said, I don't care if I have to only write one word a day. Because sometimes, I'm telling you, that keyboard was kicking my butt. You know? Oh, yeah. And then like one that blew up the veins of one of my arms, I was chemo treatment. So that, I couldn't even use my arm for a while. And so it was just, you know, right. when you're they're, trying they're to take one hand and you make something happen, meanwhile, yeah. you're going through all this and you're trying to put stuff online, trying to be positive and try to make something. And you're the only voice for this when you have no voice. <laughs> I, I know you'll never know, but I mean, do you think, what, what do you think anything would have been different had you not had the cancer? Do you think that changed anything? Or do you think you just would have done the same stuff, but just gotten it done sooner? I don't know. I don't know. I really don't. I don't know if it had been worse, better, sideways, or more, you know, more people or, but you know, I figure, you know what, if I'm going to do it, this is the time for me to do it. I can't, there's no, no tomorrow in my book. It was something to, because it could happen. I didn't know if they, next time I go for treatment, they tell me, sorry, this is it. I want to make sure if I do it, I want to make sure I do it. Right. It wasn't the best, but at least, you know what? I tried. That's what I wanted to see. You know? At least I tried, you know. <laughs> you criticize it like you want, but you say you do better while you're on a bed being filled full of toxic chemicals that's keeping you just yeah. shy of dying just so you can kill cancer. So do better than that. So. <laughs> See if you can. Yeah, that's pretty amazing because I, I know that it, I mean that's I mean that's you know that's definitely a very emotional time and and you know, I think it's just you know being able to to utilize that in a way to to at least I think I don't want to say you found purpose in there but I mean I think there was a purpose that you're able to latch onto that probably helped at least to give you some sort of way to navigate through that emotional and physically trying time. Yeah, you got to have something to lean on when, you know, just to keep your focus on, can't even think straight, you know, <laughs> when you're just laying in bed, literally, you know, you, you probably threw up your shoes and guts from like three years ago and nothing, there's nothing to come out but nothing. Right. And you're just sitting there, you got to figure out a way to, mo you got to motivate yourself to get up to do something instead of sit there and feeling miserable for yourself. Right, which is both, uh, yeah, which is both under. I mean, anybody that would throw up any party, I think, is very understandable and forgivable. But I think to be able to <laughs> say, you know, what I'm not going to do that is it definitely is is pretty amazing. Yeah, I, well, I think, you know. and, and I'm sure seeing that happen to the doctor saying that to that guy, it's probably easy to visualize that same doctor coming and saying the same thing to you too. It's it's. Oh, yeah. It wasn't the first guy I had seen it done to, but that was the most recent guy literally seeing it right next to me. <laughs> so you, you, you made it through the chemotherapy. You kept working. Um, you were able to get stuff laid out and get things published. So did you, so the final product, did you do a box set for the BX version of this game? No, okay. no, I did not. Just the booklet. Just the booklet. And so do you, do you, um, 
do you go to conventions and sell these or are you mainly doing online? I, I, I do mainly online. I'll go to conventions and I'll sell them. And something you know, I did a few, I, I was amazed how well it's done. I was utterly shocked how well people took to it when I took, when I went to Gary Khan, how well it received. Well, I think the thing is, is about those guys. Well, I think there's a couple things going on. I think it's, it's, it's sometimes easy for people to look back and say, yeah, it would do good because of X, Y, Z, or it was obvious. But when you're starting from where you're starting going forward, it's not obvious, right? No, it's not obvious at all. You're it like, went horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really easy to look at things in the past, like people who've, who've, who've risked things and done things and discount because it was successful to whatever degree to not realize what amount of stress and concern and worry that can go into investing money, real money. This isn't, you know, not just timing. I'm, I'm, I've been, I put some money into this hobby and I put a lot of time into it, but I've not put a lot of money, not serious amount of money, not, you know, you know, yeah. write a check with, 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 uh, you know, three zeros or four zeros or five zeros or whatever it may be. I mean, that's, that, that is the, um, it's kind of a sign when you're willing to put up that kind of money, it shows a level of commitment, but it also demonstrates a, a quite a bit of courage because you just don't know. Cause this was a pre Kickstarter, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, no, it was Kickstarters were going on. I didn't even kickstart it. I did all, I said, I'm gonna do this out of pocket because this is what I want to do. <laughs> it's like, I believe in my product this much. Because if I don't believe in it, who will? Right. If my enthusiasm is not enough to make you want to buy my product, then why am I even doing it? Well, <laughs> I will say, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, the uh, So do you, do you plan to like do a box set? Like go to uh, Kickstarter for be, that? There's going to be an expert set coming up soon. Oh, that's in the works. That's slowly getting uh, ready. But this year put a huge stamper on a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, you may want to, you know, it's, you know, of course, you're the you're you're a better gauge of this. But, you know, Kickstarter might be a way if you want to do a box set, to at least fund I, the. Yeah, it might be. Well, put it this way. It, uh, I've made a profit, so I, I can't of all the money I spent, I made a profit so far. So I'm not saying no. I'm right. thinking about, it, you know. It's definitely got some potential for a Kickstarter. You know, but of course, it all depends on how I, I got to get more artists, and that's going to cost me probably a lot more. <laughs> well, what you can do, I mean, this is what I'm doing for my dinky thing is I'm, I've, you know, I've got X amount of art I put out there. I went and bought stock art, and, um, and then if it funds beyond a certain point, I'll just start replacing the stock art with, with you know, with uh, commissioned work. And just say, you know what, every, you know, whatever it may be, it just goes to artwork. And I think, I think people now, I, I think there's a lot of people who are happy with funding projects that are also funding artists. So right. I think, so people, I think seeing, oh, you're going to hire such and such artists and give them money. I think that time motivates a certain least segment of people to say, you know, at least I'm supporting some cool people doing some cool stuff. Because obviously there's not much money in this in this hobby unless yeah. you're, it's like, not unless you, you know, somebody who's like 
known and pushed. And, you know, it's like any other industry. Everyone's got their favorites. And sometimes, no matter what they do, it sells. You know, it's just how it is. And yes. I, I'm, a niche, I'm, a, I'm in a niche market of a niche. Of oh, yeah. a niche market, you know. Exactly. You're right. Because it's easy to kind of forget just how small it is. But it is a very, very, very small segment of a very small segment. Right. It's like, <laughs> you know, but I think that's also where success can come, right? Cause you're not going to be probably successful if you're going out there and saying, you know what, I'm just going to write a bunch of D and D fifth edition adventures. Yeah. Cause you're competing against thousands of other people. I'm just one more person in the bond in the bundle. Yeah. But, but as soon as, but somebody says, I want to run a, a, a twenties gangster game. It's like, I'm right at the top of the list. <laughs> Boom, right to the top. There we go. Oh, you yes, want to look I, at this first, you know? And, and again, I will say, I think for the prices that you're charging, it, it's it's well worth it. So um, it's it's definitely, um, you've, you've, you have good price points for your, for your products. Well, I tried to make it like, okay, if you're going to play it, I figured most people, what they'll do, they'll get the PDF. And then I'm like, you know what? All right, I'm going to get the book. And you know what? Well, I'm gonna go ahead and go ahead and get this, 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 and this because it's right there. And it's eh, for twenty bucks, I can get everything I need. Right. And that's what I figured. And that's what I figured. For twenty bucks, you can get all the stuff you need and ready to play. Oh yeah. Well, anyway, uh, thanks for for joining and explaining the the process of of going through and acquiring an IP and, and producing work. It's definitely both very interesting and very informative and um i must congratulate on on going through that process uh that's that was an easy it, there's no there was no um necessary roadmap for you to follow there is no like acquiring ip for dummies book that you would you would pick up yeah. right it's persistence is the number one it, it is persistence will, i think you will run into roadblocks and things will not go if you want them to go so be ready when you get knocked down, not just get up, get up swinging, because you're going to get knocked down. <laughs> you will get knocked down. <laughs> and everyone will say, why did you do it this way? And then when you ask them for help, no one wants to step forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yes. but I've been lucky. I've had people step forward. I tell you, I have been lucky. People have come forward. They've asked me. They've gave me support. The OSR community is fantastic. I don't care what grumpy golden art, whatever you see, what you want, man. I love these guys. They've been nothing but loving. Oh, nothing great. but loving. <laughs> that's great. And I think that's really what's important. I mean, it's just uh to find a community where we can just kind of just enjoy a thing. You know what I mean? There's, we don't need to be dragging all sorts of crazy stuff, but just accept people as being fun people and, and enjoy our time together and help yeah. each other when we can. Well, well, thanks again, Mark. I appreciate it. And you take care. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for listening to RPG Ramblings. I am Jeff Jones and I can be reached at I underscore am underscore Jeffrey at Twitter. And I also started an RPG Ramblings Facebook group. Until next week, take care, my friends.
Hey, Eric, you got a minute? Sure, Jeff. What do you got? Oh, okay. Well, a long, 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 long time ago, I was listening to this uh, Spike Pit podcast. I know it well. Yeah, I mean, lots of great stuff on there. and um, But one thing that stuck with me, and it's like flaming oil. Right. Well, have you ever, like, actually worked with oil? Uh, when you say worked with oil, like, what have I ever tried well, to, like, I mean, burn if you're somebody take... alive with it? Not, yeah. Not, not personally. No, I guess I don't mean any sort of, like... Actually, I mean, that's bad wording. It kind of makes it sound kind of like dirty or something. But uh, anyway, the. Uh, no, and, and, no, and I haven't used it in any kind of uh, adult uses for it either. No, but, yeah, I, mean, but I mean, like when you would burn this stuff, it's like we treat the stuff like gasoline, right? You take a flask and you throw it and it explodes in flames. But that's not how oil works, like no. kerosene. In fact, kerosene is associated the only way, the reason it works is because it's a tense amount of heat in a very small amount of area, being able to produce those hydrocarbons that keep the flame going. You can't just like throw a torch into a vat of oil and it's going to explode like it's you know nitroglycerin. But no, that's how it'll, we. It'll, it'll ignite, you know, but it's not going to. Uh, it doesn't have the fumes to cause that kind of a, a gas explosion that we're used to seeing on. TV. Yeah, so if you're to take like a, a a thing of kerosene, a flask. And you're able to put a wick in it, and you're able to light the wick and throw it at a person, and it was to hit them and break. Nothing would happen. Nothing. And we're working on the assumption that the wick goes out upon the hit, which it might happen because kerosene is just as likely to put out that wick as it is to be ignited by the wick at that point. Exactly. But here we play a game where these are like Molotov cocktails, right? Well, yeah, because I'm sure Gary designed them based upon Molotov cocktails, which were popular in World War II by a lot of the resistance and guerrilla forces, <clears throat> which were which were mostly alcohol or, or gasoline-based. Because, again, it's the fumes that, that are the secret. Now, I'm going to say I'm guilty, too, because, in fact, one adventure I was a player in, I had a mule. We had kegs of oil. I would send it off to the direction I wanted bad things to happen, shoot a magic missile, and kaboom! The problem would take care of itself with this explosion. Now the question is, should we be playing a game where oil just explodes like gasoline, or should we not? Uh, you know, that's a good question. And uh, I, 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 Tim, I think, yeah, I think, I think Tim was in the session that I ran, Tim Shorts, Joe the Lawyer, and a few others, where uh, they, uh, well, maybe it wasn't Tim, but in any case, they they, 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 they grabbed some goblins in uh, some mining tunnels and then uh, put a goblin tied into a, m a mining cart, filled it with some flasks of oil, and then lit it on fire and then sent the mining cart at the other goblins. That, of course, well, nothing's better than a flaming goblin. It's kind of like a dessert. Yeah. Or sounds like sounds like a drink, actually. I probably probably is somewhere. Um, again, this is, you, you're touching upon that whole issue of reality versus suspension of disbelief, and uh, not being an expert on on um, flammable substances, I can hand wave and go, I don't care. 
if I was somebody that was like a fireman as a profession, I'd be looking at it and going, wow, I know this isn't how it works. It's hard for me to suspend my disbelief. Maybe I should figure out a game rule that will correct this. Or just say the oil in fantasy games is not the same oil that kerosene that we use here in the real world. I, listen, I, I have a problem watching uh, cop movies and dramas on TV because my suspension of disbelief gets whacked over the head number, numerous times. That's like, we would never do that. You, if you've got to rack your gun and put a and, and put a round in the chamber when you when you draw it, you you're fired. I mean, but it looks good on TV, so you have to prove it. So it's similar with the oil. And, well, and the maybe that person's region. Barney Fife. Well, it could be too. Well, it's Barney Fife. They probably don't give him any rounds for his guns. God only knows gun safety is probably not uh, the premier idea there. But, um, you know, again, it's well as in your case, if you use magic missile to blow it up, I would have ruled as a GM magic missiles generate no heat and they're not flammable. Uh, Unless, of course, you're playing basic, in which case they say it's like a, a flaming bolt. But I never saw a flaming uh, magic missile like that. I, never, I didn't start with basic. I started with AD&D. And I didn't quite describe it the same way. But, uh, I mean... So you think the, the, you think a fantasy world is better with oil that explodes than oil that doesn't explode? I think it's a trope that we are accustomed to. But is it better? That's what I want to know. It, it depends on you. But for you, what do you say? Kids. If I were to say, Eric, what should be the ruling? Is it more fun or not more fun? Uh, again, it depends on the campaign, the GM, and the player. Hmm. It's, it, I, I don't dictate your fun. Okay. Well, that makes it harder. I have to think for myself, and I don't really like there that. There you go. Somebody should. Uh, I'll ask the internet. I'm sure they'll tell me the proper way to play. Oh, um, I, I'm sure they will. <laughs> uh, numerous different ways. That contradict each other, but each one is the only true method. Okay, well, it sounds like I got more homework tonight to do. But at least, and, at uh, least you got me on the right path. Later. Yeah. Well, anyway, I can't. I can't expect to answer all life's problems. I suppose. Uh, as long as you stick to gaming, you got a better chance of getting an answer. Okay. Real life problems. I don't know about that. Okay. That that'll. Uh, okay. Well, then, forget what I was going to ask you next. <laughs> I'll talk I to you later. <laughs> All right. Bye. Be good.